0: Over the last several years, our family has taken a couple of extended vacations that have required us to drive long distances. And one of the things that has made these occasions such wonderful and enjoyable times is that my daughter, Catherine, has collected various sets of old radio programs, weeklies from the 40s and 50s like Dragnet, Johnny Dollar, Tales of Edgar Allan Poe, And it's amazing to us always how these things transcend time and how they still keep us engaged, driving mile after mile after mile. And the funniest all, at least from our perspective, are the commercials. Commercials that advertise various products before and after each episode. And without question, our favorites are the Camel Cigarette commercials. At the time... Camel was the proud sponsor of the most popular radio show in the country, The Abbott & Costello Show. And of all their commercials, in the opinion of our family, this one is the best. Cut me a little slack and uh, I'll see what I can do. C-A-M-E-L-S. Experience is the best teacher. Try a camel. Let your own experience tell you why more people are smoking camels than ever before. Experience is the best teacher. It happened shortly after the end of the war. Two cigarettes glow in the dusk on the veranda of a country house as a man and woman are chatting. The woman remarks, Robert, you've changed your cigarette brand. This is a camel. I can tell without even looking. Yes, I have changed my brand. You know how we smoked whatever cigarettes we could get during the war. Oh, don't I? Yes, I must have tried all the brands during that shortage. That's when I found I liked camels best. And weren't you right? Yes, experience is the best teacher. During the wartime shortage, people smoked whatever cigarettes they could get. It was this experience that taught millions the differences in cigarette quality. As smokers tried cigarette after cigarette on their T-zone, that's T for taste and T for throat, It was camels' rich, full flavor and cool mildness that stood out from all the others. The result? Today, more people smoke camels than ever before. According to a recent nationwide survey, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Three leading independent research organizations asked this question of 113,597 doctors, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? The brand-named most was Camel. Now, you probably enjoy rich, full flavor and cool mildness in a cigarette just as much as doctors do. And that's why if you're not a Camel smoker now, try a Camel on your T-Zone. That's T for taste and T for throat your true proving ground for any cigarette. See if Camel's rich flavor of superbly blended choice tobaccos isn't extra delightful to your taste. See if Camel's cool mildness isn't in harmony with your throat. See if you don't say, Camel's suit my T-zone to a T. (laughs) C-A-M-E-L-S. I mean, I find that absolutely amazing that thinking people actually believe such a thing to be true. The fact of the matter is, friends, they weren't laughing at that commercial back in the 1940s. To the contrary, it was taken as gospel. You say, well, how do you know that? Because my own mother, at 15 years of age, readily took up smoking. Because in the last five and a half years, she has suffered two strokes, two heart attacks, a brain tumor, triple bypass surgery, and out-of-control diabetes all as a consequence of having embraced those advertised promises. And she wasn't alone in that. As you well know, millions of Americans took up smoking with a vengeance. It makes you wonder, doesn't it, about the commercials that we're not laughing at today, but ought to be. It's still the same approach, isn't it? Assurances from people with apparent expertise, guaranteeing reliability. Nine out of ten doctors agree... Whether we're talking about uh, Advil or SlimFast or Viagra, who can we trust? On what source of authority can we stake our lives? Is there anything upon which we can place our unwavering, unreserved confidence? And of course, it is at this point that evangelicals are quick to say, Well, we have the Word of God. We have the sacred scriptures. When everything else fails, we have the one reliable word from God. But are you sure of that? Are you absolutely certain that's true? You say, yes, Art. I believe the Bible is reliable. Really? Reliable for what? Reliable for all of life, you say. Really? Reliable as a manual for changing the oil in your car? You say, well, of course not. Don't be ridiculous. Well, uh, reliable as a guide for choosing wise financial investments? No, well, maybe, I think. Reliable as a source for determining what method of birth control to use? Yes, uh, by all means, I think. Reliable as a tool for discerning the right career path? Absolutely. Perhaps. I'm not so sure. To what end is the Bible reliable? You say, now wait a minute, Art. you've obviously lost yourself. You've forgotten where you're at. This is this is the wretched radio and television conference. This is a Psalm 119 conference. You're asking us, is the Bible reliable? No, that's not quite what I'm asking. My question has taken a bit of a different shape. To what end is the Bible reliable? Now, you see, I pose the question in this way because inherent in the idea of reliability is the concept of purpose. For something to be reliable means, quote, it is able to be trusted to do what is expected or has been promised. When you tell me that a young woman is a reliable babysitter, you're telling me she can get the job done. I can expect that. When you tell me that your car is reliable, you're telling me I can expect it to take me where I am going. So what can we trust the Bible to do? What promise does the Bible make for itself? Is the Bible really and truly the handbook for all of life? Because if it is, frankly, it's a bit disappointing. It hasn't answered all of our questions as parents. It hasn't answered all of our questions with regard to the proper use of money. I realize, friends, it sounds almost heretical to pose the question like this, but it grows out of a very real problem, I assure you, that confronts Bible-believing folk like us. And it is this. In making the Bible speak where it is silent, many people have subsequently silenced the Bible where it speaks. In making the Bible speak about everything from how we school our children to the form of birth control we use to whether or not we bottle-feed our children. I fear we have neutralized the Bible from saying anything. In making the Bible akin to an answer book for a game of trivial pursuit, we've lost our grip on the Bible's own purpose for its existence, and thus the integrity of its reliability has been profoundly compromised. Is the Bible reliable? Yes! Yes! But for people like us, that question is much too vague. To what end is the Bible reliable? The reason why we've not grasped that question properly and answered it properly, that's the reason we're having conferences like this, you see. And of course, dear friends, though we happily affirm that the Bible is reliable to a great many ends, you must never forget that there is one supreme and ultimate end toward which the entirety of the Bible moves. One consummate aim that reveals the Spirit's overarching intention in securing this book for us. And that is, over against everything else, the Bible's reliability is grounded in the fact that from cover to cover, it relentlessly, ruthlessly points us to Jesus Christ that from the Genesis to the Revelation, the Bible is unashamedly Christian, and our teaching of it, our preaching of it, remains less than Christian until this becomes a clear and evident feature of it. What is the sum and substance of the Holy Spirit's revelatory ministry? How many times have you come across Christians, members perhaps of your own congregations, Who are thoroughly and altogether confused about the ministry of the Holy Spirit? They see certain things on television. They see people wind up like a baseball pitcher and, as it were, throw the Holy Spirit into the crowd, knocking people to the ground, taking off their suit, jacket, waving it over the crowd. Hundreds of people fall to the ground and they wonder now, how come we're not doing that at our church? Should we be doing that at our church? Now, let me just say as a little caveat right here to my way of thinking, engaging with this question and thinking carefully about it has nothing to do with whether or not a person happens to be a cessationist or a continuationist. If you don't know what those words mean, don't worry about it. Don't be bothered by it. What I'm getting at, friends, is I realize there are good people that shake out on both sides of this issue. That is to say, there are people who believe certain of the spiritual gifts have ceased with the apostolic era. There are other people who believe that they do continue. Nonetheless, whichever view you happen to hold, you have to acknowledge that people are altogether confused today about the Holy Spirit, what He does. And I've been around now long enough, old enough... Uh, as it were, to have seen an evolution in the things that often get said about the Holy Spirit. I was not a believer at the time, but 40 years ago, I remember the invitation, at least hearing it sound something like this, come and get the second blessing. And then about 30 years ago, 35 years ago, it evolved into come and get baptized with the Holy Spirit. 25, 30 years ago, right around the time I was converted, it took on a more dramatic flavor, come and get slain by the Holy Spirit, 20 or so years ago, the call was more intense, come and get blasted by the Holy Spirit. And then 15 years ago, we have people here from Toronto come and laugh in the Holy Spirit. It was about 10 years ago, I encountered something even more extreme, come and vomit in the Spirit. And today, you can go home and YouTube Todd Todd Bentley And you can see now this defrocked minister conducting a healing service and a man comes on the platform who has stomach cancer and Todd Bentley, who's a very large man, walks up to him and knees him right in the stomach, knocking him to the ground and then looks at the camera and says, the Holy Spirit told me to do that. How come we're not doing that at our church? All of this, you see, raises two questions in my mind, one pastoral and one doctrinal. On the pastoral level... My concern is that the spiritual development of well-meaning Christians can easily fall prey, you see, to the old law of diminishing returns. That is, today's enthusiasm becomes tomorrow's bore. What produces a spiritual ecstasy this week will need to be outdone next week. And by and by, you've seen it. The ordinary gives way to the unusual. The unusual gives way to the extreme. The extreme gives way to the ridiculous. And eventually, it always leads to the same end, emptiness. Now, that is a concern on a pastoral level. But there is a nagging doctrinal issue as well. And that is what concerns me about a lot of what is taking place today in the name of the Holy Spirit is that the ministry of the Holy Spirit has become almost exclusively Christian-centered rather than Christ-centered. It's about me And getting those goosebumps on the back of my neck. And yet, as is so unmistakably clear, the holy ambition of the Spirit of God is to reveal and glorify Jesus Christ. Look at John 14, verse 26, verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the advocate, maybe your translation says the helper, the comforter, the counselor, can be translated any number of ways. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Turn to chapter 16, verse 12. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. And finally, chapter 15, verse 26. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify with regard to concerning about me. Do you get the point? Again and again and again, Jesus makes clear to his disciples, the sum and the substance of the Holy Spirit's revelatory ministry will be about me. I will be the focal point of the Spirit's communication to the people of God. And therefore, you see, dear friends, when a ministry becomes preoccupied with the Holy Spirit, driven by a manic pursuit of certain ecstatic manifestations assumed to be the work of the Holy Spirit... It is altogether out of keeping with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, ultimately to the great grieving of the Holy Spirit. It's J.I. Packer who has said to us, the Holy Spirit is the cosmic marriage broker, the celestial matchmaker whose burden it is to bring us and Jesus Christ together. That brings us now to question number two. How does the Holy Spirit reveal and glorify Jesus Christ? How does the Holy Spirit reveal and glorify Jesus Christ? And the answer is, he does this through one predominant means. The written word of God that the Spirit himself has inspired. A word that from cover to cover relentlessly points us to one great and glorious person, Jesus Christ. He has, promised, he has been promised to us in the earliest portions of this book. The middle portion of this book provides us with a historical account of his coming and accomplishments. And the conclusion of this book sets him forth as the one glorious object of worship for all of eternity. He is there in the beginning, he is there in the middle, and he is there at the end. These are the great and mighty pillars upon which the whole of biblical revelation rests. Moreover, every other portion of this book only serves to reinforce that superstructure. So that this is not, at the end of the day, my dear brothers and sisters, an inspired book of virtues. This is not a composite of 66 disrelated books sewn together in a single volume because they all just so happen to bear the quality of divine inspiration. Pardon the pun, the Bible is a hymn book. It is a record of the redemption of the people of God by His own Son, Jesus Christ. It was Spurgeon who said to a young and aspiring preacher, Don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road that leads to London? So from every text in Scripture, there is a road towards the great metropolis, Christ. And my dear brother, your business when you get to a text is to say, Now, what is the road that leads to Christ? What is the predominant ministry of the Holy Spirit to glorify the Son of God? How will he do that? Through the means of the inscripturated word that relentlessly rivets its focus on the Son of God. Which portions of the Scriptures point us to Jesus Christ? Which portions of the Holy Scripture point us to Jesus Christ? That's a fair question. Well... Look again at what Jesus says back in chapter 14, verse 26. Look, let's look a little closer at these passages. Once again, he says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. All things about nuclear science. All things about astrophysics. Notice the very next word in the sentence. It's the word and, and that's what we call an epizegetical and. It means that the two statements that surround it are not coordinate, rather the second one helps to explain the first. So let me read it to you the way we ought to read it. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. That is to say, he will remind you of everything I have told you. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have told you. And we have that word of remembrance, don't we? It's called Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. The narrative portions of our New Testament. But the New Testament, dear friends, is more than narrative, isn't it? It's more than just a record of the words and works of Jesus Christ. It includes the outworking of that truth, the theologizing of that truth the making known of the practical implications and moral and ethical consequences of that truth, that is to say, the New Testament is also doctrinal. Look back at chapter 16, verse 13. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all. And now in the Greek text it is very strong. He will guide you into all. The truth, there is doctrine, there is theology. And in great measure, it's embodied in the epistles, Romans to Jude. But while the New Testament is made up of narrative and doctrine, it also possesses a third kind of revelation, revelation that is prophetic. So keep reading in verse 13. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. There you have the future, the things that are yet to come. Now, do you see how comprehensive this is? It is the promise of New Testament revelation. As it were, this is Christ's Pre-authentication of the New Testament scriptures. He will remind you of everything that I have told you, the narrative. He will guide you into all the truth, the doctrinal. He will declare to you what is to come, the prophetic. All to what end? Verse 14, he will glorify me. Because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. He will guide the apostles into all truth about Jesus Christ. What he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. Our New Testament relentlessly points us to Jesus Christ. You say, well, Art, once again you've forgotten where you are. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the New Testament is about Jesus Christ. What's the big deal? And what I want to say to you in response is, then why is it I hear so much preaching from the New Testament that never mentions Christ? I mean, five steps for this and three steps for that. And and then we have to think about the Old Testament. The Old Testament. I mean, certainly that really doesn't have a whole lot of bearing on us today. It's Israel's book. We're the church. Brick wall between the two. You say, well, we can agree that there are certain few passages in the Old Testament that really do seem to make allusion to Jesus Christ. Genesis three, perhaps. though no, we're not so sure about that one. And and, and Psalm twenty two, at least the first verse of Psalm twenty two, and, and 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 Isaiah fifty three, though there would be some who would doubt that. But, but but not all of the Old Testament points us to Jesus. Really? Are you sure? For my money, this is what I would like you to spend the rest of your life doing. What does the New Testament teach us about the Old Testament? Because I don't care what your hermeneutic happens to be. If you don't get this right, everything else is irrelevant. What does the New Testament say about the Old Testament? Because I want to think about the Old Testament the way Jesus and the apostles did, don't you? Consider what it is that Paul says to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing those from whom you learned, and that from childhood you have known the sacred Scriptures. What are the sacred Scriptures Paul is referring to? Old Testament. Amazing! The Old Testament. He's referring to what we have come to possess as the Old Testament Scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. And by the way, don't now miss the purpose that they serve knowing those from whom you learned and that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What? The Old Testament can lead a person to faith in Jesus Christ? You bet they can when we interpret them as they were intended to be interpreted, not merely as texts in isolation from the rest of the Bible, but as signposts in anticipation of the redemption that was ultimately to be accomplished in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter says it like this, talking about our salvation. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you "...searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when He testified in advance to the messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you concerning things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven." who was at work in these prophets giving to them this revelation that has come to make up our Old Testament? He says, the Spirit of Christ. The very same Spirit that Jesus mentions in John fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. 16. Interesting. Well, if the Holy Spirit inspired the New Testament, and the theme of the New Testament is Jesus Christ, and the very same Spirit of Christ inspired the Old Testament, then what might we reasonably deduce to be the theme of the Old Testament? Let me ask you the same question in a slightly different way. To what and to whom was the Spirit of Jesus Christ pointing through these Old Testament prophets? They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when He testified in advance to the Messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. Do you realize, my friends, that the same Spirit who inspired the writers of the New Testament to reflect upon the person and work of Jesus Christ is the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writers of the Old Testament to anticipate Him? Have you ever considered the opening and closing to the book of Romans? Oh, I love the book of Romans, love the book of Romans. People talk about that. I love the book of Romans. you realize how the book of Romans ends and begins In a giant literary envelope, we call it an inclusio. This is how Paul begins. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news, which he promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Old Testament was pointing to Christ. How does Paul conclude the book of Romans? Now to him who has power to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the sacred secret, kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures. The Old Testament revealed the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You understand, dear brothers and sisters, this is why the Old Testament became the Bible for the early Christians. They didn't just take up the Old Testament because of their Jewish heritage, because for the time being they figured it could provide some helpful moral guidelines until the New Testament could be written. They were persuaded that the Old Testament pointed them to Jesus Christ, to the days of fulfillment when the promises and pictures and shadows and types of redemption would be accomplished in him. My dear friends, there is a reason why God has given to us an entire Bible and not just a pocket New Testament. I mean, that has got to be one of the most insane things that the church of Jesus Christ has ever done. Stripped off the first two-thirds and say, Here, this is all you need. You can't understand the last third of the Bible without the first two-thirds of the Bible. All of the scriptures are Christian scriptures, and until we read them in a Christic way, we will never grasp the purpose of the Holy Spirit in giving them to us. Consider this account in the opening of the Gospel of John. The next day, he, Jesus, decided to leave for Galilee. Jesus found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did all the prophets, Jesus the son of Joseph. Hmm. The one Moses wrote about. Do you people still believe in the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I hope you do. Philip says to his buddy Nathaniel, we found the one Moses wrote about. Even they got it. They're not even believers yet. And yet I was told, you don't preach Jesus unless his name is there. But after all, don't forget, this is just Philip speaking. Maybe he's mistaken. Inspiration does not guarantee that everything he says is absolutely accurate, only that the record of what he says is accurate. In John chapter 5, Jesus says to the Jews who were persecuting him, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. Hmm. What scriptures does Jesus have in mind? The Old Testament. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, because he wrote about me. Moses wrote about Jesus? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Maybe Philip was mistaken, but Jesus? In Acts chapter 3... When Peter is preaching the gospel in the temple, he says, And now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance, crucified Christ, just as your leaders also did. But what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. All the prophets. Habakkuk? Nahum? Obadiah? in fact in that same sermon he goes on to quote deuteronomy 18 and genesis 22 by the way in his sermon on the day of pentecost peter quotes joel chapter 2 psalm 16 second samuel 7 and psalm 110 In his sermon in Acts chapter 4, Peter quotes Psalm 118. Later on in that same chapter, the apostolic Christians quote Exodus 20 and Psalm 2, all to speak of Jesus. In Acts 8, as you well know, Philip preaches Isaiah 53. Watch the sermons in the book of Acts. Learn from the sermons in the book of Acts. They teach you how to interpret the Old Testament. And after all, they learned it from Jesus. That's where your hermeneutic has to begin. It's what I meant yesterday when I said I do not want a hermeneutic that is a product of 18th century scholastic rationalism. It's not as simple to say literal, historical, contextual, grammatical. Well, all of that is important, dear friends, but Jesus gives us something much more concrete. All through the book of Acts, dozens of occasions, the Christians use the Old Testament to preach Christ. And oftentimes we have hermeneutics that don't allow for that. You realize, friends, what I'm saying here. I mean, the long and short of it is simply this. We are on safe ground when all of our preaching and all of our teaching and all of our theologizing falls within the boundaries of Christmas and the day of the Lord. I'm not saying that Christians should only preach from the New Testament. No, no, a thousand times no. What I'm saying is you can't preach from the Old Testament as though the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ never took place. I'm saying you now need to interpret all of Revelation from Revelation's highest point. I'm telling you that in the Bible, the answers are in the back, and we must now go back to the front and reread all of the promises made in light of the fulfillment that has come. You see, what we've done, we've created a brick wall between the Testaments. We read Old Testament prophecies, and to interpret them, we pull out the USA Today. We are to read the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament. And when you do that, you will always read the Old Testament Christocentrically. These are words of a friend of mine and they really get at the point, so I'll try and read them well. Unless we identify the redemptive purposes in a text, it is possible to say all the right words and yet send all the wrong signals. I witness this communication almost daily on the top-rated radio station in our city that broadcasts a morning meditation. Each morning, the preacher addresses some topic with a Bible verse or two. The subjects run the gamut from procrastination to parenting to honesty on the job. The station turns up the reverberation whenever this preacher speaks so that it sounds as though his words come direct from Mount Sinai. Not to pay attention seems like a sin. I would guess that few even question the content of the man's words as he reminds us from the Bible to practice punctuality, good parenting, and business propriety. I realize a hundred thousand motorists are nodding their heads and saying in unison, that's right, that's how we should live. I have even played tapes of this preacher's meditations to seminary classes and asked if anyone can discern error in what he says. Rarely does anyone spot a problem. The preacher quotes his text accurately, he advocates moral causes, and he encourages loving behaviors. The problem that I point out to students, and that is carefully hidden from the broadcast audience, is that this radio preacher is not a Christian, he represents a large cult headquartered in our region. How can this be? How can so many Christians, even those well-informed, so readily grant assent to one whose communications are so radically anti-Christian? Some answer that their lack of protest results from the radio preacher's care to avoid saying anything controversial. They contend that he hides his heresy beneath a veil of right-sounding orthodoxy. Such defenses miss the point even as his proponents have missed the problem. The radio preacher has not hidden his heresy. He exposes it every time he speaks in what he fails to say. The real problem is that evangelical preachers inadvertently and so frequently present such similar messages that Christians fail to hear the difference between a message that purports to be biblical and one that actually is. Now listen. A message that merely advocates morality and compassion remains sub-Christian even if the preacher can prove that the Bible demands such behaviors. If an Orthodox Jew can listen to my exposition of the David and Goliath story and at the conclusion say, Amen, I agree. I've not preached the Bible Christianly. So perhaps I rightly defined every word and parsed every verb in that passage. I have yet to understand that the entirety of the Bible is Christian Scripture. Look at this scene later on, on Resurrection Sunday, verse 44. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. There it is, the totality of it. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Now, that's exactly what we need. He told them. Now, friends, hang on to your horses here. He told them. Who is the he? The resurrected Lord. Right? The resurrected Lord the one about whom it has been said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. He, the resurrected Lord, told them, this is what is written. Stop right there. Here is the resurrected Lord interpretation of the Old Testament. Now, I don't care what hermeneutic you have. If you don't begin here, it's wrong. Here is Jesus Christ telling you what the Old Testament is about. He told them This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. From cover to cover, the inscripturated word centers all of its attention on Jesus Christ. He is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. He is the ark to rescue the people of God. He is the angel of Yahweh. He is the seed of Abraham in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. He is the prophet greater than Moses. He is the pillar of fire in the wilderness. He is the Passover lamb. He is the rock that Moses strikes He is the seed of David who establishes an everlasting kingdom. He is the final Melchizedekian priest. He is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. He is the prophet greater than Jonah. He is the thrice holy Lord of Isaiah 6. He is the greater shepherd of Ezekiel 34. He is the Son of Man who receives universal sovereignty from the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. He is Mary's baby, Herod's enemy, Simeon's joy. He is the 12 year old boy in the temple confounding the doctors of the law. He is the beloved son to be baptized. He is the healer of the blind, the provider of the hungry, the friend of the outcast. He is the source of living water, the last day's temple, the manna that gives life, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, and the Father's true vine. He was the spotless Lamb who took away the sin of the world and the resurrected Lion from the tribe of Judah. He is the ascended Lord, the ruler of the church, the returning judge of all people. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the bright morning star. This book, by the stated intention of the Spirit of God, relentlessly points us to Jesus Christ. And you must demand nothing less. This, this, this is what defines the Bible's reliability. Not that it is a comprehensive parenting manual. This is what defines its reliability. It's what you can trust the Bible to do. The Old Testament is Jesus predicted, the Gospels are Jesus revealed, Acts is Jesus preached the epistles Jesus explained, and the revelation Jesus expected. And with all due respect, my dear brothers and sisters, to preach it, to teach it in a way that ignores this, is to attempt to transform the Bible into an altogether different Bravehearted Voices is brought to you by the ministry of Deeper Christian in partnership with Eldersley Discipleship. Our passion is to help you grow spiritually by providing Christ-centered resources, discipleship and training in the Word of God and the victorious life of Christ. Our agenda is to bring back the stuff of old, the sort of Christianity that is lived out with the gusto of heaven and actually and practically works. For more, visit braveheartedvoices.com.